0: ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning, and I pray that it is a help and a blessing uh, to us as we seek to grow to be more like Christ. I'm going to read the text again, uh, starting in verse number 13, and then we'll have a quick word of prayer and jump into the time, our time together in the Word of God. The Bible says this, and he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh? With publicans and sinners. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God, we ask this morning again that you would use your word to do a great work in our hearts. God, that we would be sensitive to the things that your word and your spirit teach us today. God, I do pray that our hearts would be open and ready to receive. God, may we be transformed today by the power of your word and the power of your spirit into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the calling that you have placed on our lives. God, I pray that we would take that calling seriously, that we would live for your honor and your glory. And it's in Christ's name we ask and pray. Amen. What are you doing? Depending on how this question is asked, it can convey a lot of different emotions. Things like doubt and surprise, fear or concern are all reasons that this question is often asked. And if you have had children or if you've been around children, then you'll agree that these emotions are expressed in this question many times throughout the day. What are you doing? As Jesus went about his public ministry, it's clear that this question was asked Many times by others, but often internally and not verbally. Even in the section that Matt covered last week, we see that the scribes asked this internal question and Jesus confronted them and answered them very publicly. But before we give the scribes a hard time, I'm sure in some ways that if we were watching Jesus do the things that he did in a firsthand eyewitness way, then we too probably would have had many questions as well. As we've already noted in the book of Mark, Jesus did things very differently. While the scribes, the Pharisees, and the devout Jewish followers were accustomed to some very rigid rules and lifestyles, we see Jesus in many ways came in and turned those very things on their heads. He taught differently. He acted differently. He interacted differently. And he cared differently. And while many in our world have issues when things are different, this also goes to show why many people had issue with Jesus, because he was different. You must understand, though, in being different, he was still acting in holiness and righteousness. Christ was not self-promoting or being an insurrectionist as he was accused of later on or living in sin, but rather he was doing what the Father had sent him to do. And so in this passage, again, we find Jesus being Jesus, doing the things that others wouldn't do, but doing them in a way that brought glory to the Father. As he's confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, we see that he clearly and plainly states his mission and defends his actions, and in doing so, he leaves his accusers speechless. The big idea this morning is this. The text before us today describes to us the truth about Christ and the truth about ourselves. If we reject either of these truths, we have indeed rejected the message of the gospel. As we think about Jesus and the way that he was often questioned both verbally and internally, and as this question we could sum it up in these words that I chose, what are you doing, what a compliment it would be for us if the onlooking world continually looked at the church of Jesus Christ and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I want to see two things this morning, and when Noah, he's running the slides back there, when he saw my outline, I don't know if it was a spirit of judgment or what it was, but he said, oh great, it's going to be a long one because there's only two points. <laughs> Shouldn't be that long, but we'll stay till the spirit's done, and then we'll go on from there. But two things this morning out of this text that I hope will be a help to us as we understand what Jesus was doing. The first thing I want to see this morning is understanding Jesus. We're going to walk through this passage and kind of uh, pull it apart and understand exactly what is going on here. And I pray that in doing so, our minds would grasp the full picture of who Jesus was. If you're like me, sometimes you you get a very narrow-minded view of Jesus, don't we? We see one perspective or one thing about him, and we hyper-focus on that thing. But as we look to the Gospels, all four Gospel writers give us a very broad understanding of who Jesus is and what he did, and we should... We should applaud that, we should accept that and receive it with great joy because Jesus wasn't just one facet or facet of Christianity. He was a broad picture of who God is. And as we read through the Gospels, we get that picture if we view it with open eyes. So Mark describes for us today the life that Jesus lives and he begins doing that as he begins to describe the calling of The next disciple. Uh, For Mark, this passage is is lengthy. He gets uh, all these verses uh, on this this one area of of Jesus' life, and he does so to prove a major point that's going to be helpful for us as we continue in the gospel, but also as we continue in life. As we remember last week, Jesus had just healed and forgiven a man who was paralyzed. And what an incredible text that was where Jesus says, I'm not only able to forgive sins, but I'm also able to tell this man that he can get up and walk. And in both of those ways that Jesus worked in that account, he was revealing this truth that he was indeed God in the flesh. He wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't just a powerful individual, but he was God in the flesh who came to be the savior of the world. Now we understand in that passage and this passage that the things that Jesus did caused all sorts of problems in the minds of the religious crowd, and Jesus was quick to confront them in their questioning, and that's exactly what we see here in this passage today so in verse number 13, we see that Jesus was walking by the seaside. And as he was walking, the Bible says that all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. Imagine that picture. We've seen this several times already in the Gospel of Mark where many people are making their way to Jesus. Many people are finding where Jesus is and they're attaching themselves to to him, and it's happening here again, that as Jesus is walking by the seaside, the multitude resorted unto him, and what did he do in that instance? The Bible says that he taught them. Now what does this remind us again? We've already seen it in Mark a couple times, and for me it's this, that while the miracles were great, the message was always of a greater importance. While the miracles established this idea of who Jesus was, if they only had the miracles alone, they would have been missing the crucial message of the gospel. But when the miracles were done, we see that Jesus oftentimes took time to teach them, to reveal to the crowds who he was and what he was going to do. And though oftentimes they missed it, I would assume that when Jesus finally went to the cross and died and rose again, And they witnessed this truth with their own eyes, some of them. All that Jesus said for the three years that he was on this earth came to full conclusions in their mind. And they were able to grasp this picture that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. And so Jesus taught them. In verse number 14, the Bible says that they were continuing on. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. We know this Levi later on as one that we mostly refer to as Matthew. One who would become a disciple of Jesus. His name Matthew means gift from God. And I think that's very significant in the things that Matthew was called to do. We don't know a ton about him. Many believe that he was of the tribe of Levi because of his name. But a lot of that is just uh, scholars guessing at what they maybe hope to be true. But what we do know is this. Levi, or Matthew, was a tax collector. He was one who in that day would have been, in some ways, despised. He was one who in that day, when you saw him coming, you might want to turn around and go the other way, just because of the nature of these tax collectors. And while we don't know specifically if Levi was a corrupt tax collector, we do know that as a whole, these tax collectors were looked at with disdain from the general population. They were representatives of the Roman government, and even if they weren't thieves, that alone was enough for them to be hated by the Jews. Many of them had a reputation of lying and conniving and being a thief that would inflate taxes so that they could line their own pockets. Oftentimes they were rude, they were crass, they were unkind and uncompassionate towards those with desperate needs. And they were people who got what they wanted at any cost. And as I said, we don't know if these things are true about Levi, but we do know that that's the the general consensus of the tax collectors of that day. And so Jesus, with this crowd, I'm assuming, and at least with the four original disciples that he called, are walking along and they see Levi. And I imagine that as Peter, Andrew, James, and John saw Levi sitting there, and they heard these words, follow me, that in their minds they're thinking, he can't be talking to that guy. If you notice, Levi was set up by the sea. And where were these four fishermen uh, used to conducting their business? At the sea. And so whether Levi was was dealing with those who would would be traveling on a trade route or those who would be fishermen on the sea, we're not entirely sure. But I'm sure that these four fishermen knew of this man, Levi. And when their eyes met, they began to think to themselves, Jesus can't be calling this guy. Maybe in their minds, they're thinking, Jesus... Do you know what this guy has done? Do you know the type of people that this guy hangs out with? Do you understand the type of man that he is? Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't give us those great conversations, and instead, all it tells us is that when Jesus called him, he followed. Every time we read this in the scripture, we must understand that it is significant. By their actions, those who got up from where they were and began to follow Jesus, they're making a loud statement, a very bold statement in saying this, that we believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. And though we don't fully understand him, though we can't wrap our minds around him, we are making the choice to follow him. Now, for the disciples, as I said, at least the first four, maybe they looked at Levi with disdain. But I'm sure at the very same time, there were those who looked at the four disciples with disdain as well. And isn't it true that that anybody could look at us with disdain? That they could also look at us and say, man, they call themselves a follower of Jesus. I know what they once were. I know the things that they used to do. Nevertheless, We see Levi get up and he begins to follow Jesus. And as verse 15 reveals to us, as they continued on, they made their way to Levi's house. And when they got to Levi's house, it appeared that Levi had invited his friends to join them and they sat together and were having a meal together. And I imagine that the noise coming from that house was noise like you'd never heard before. If Levi was a tax collector, if he was a corrupt individual who would inflate the taxes to line his own pockets, then we could probably assume that those he asked to join him at his house on that day were of the very same nature. They were a crowd that was a little rough around the edges. They were a crowd who, who were oftentimes looked at as belligerent or bold and not in a good way. And nevertheless, this is where Jesus finds himself. And I find it interesting that it doesn't just say that Jesus was at the house of Levi standing off in the corner or in the shadows, but what does the Bible tell us? That Jesus was sitting with these individuals, sitting with them. Now, in Bible days, that idea of table fellowship was a big deal. If you invited somebody into your house, it meant that you were desiring in some way to have a close and intimate and connected relationship with them, that you weren't just interested in them on a surface level, but you wanted to invest in their lives. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying as he found himself in Levi's house on that day. And as the conversation in the house began to grow and the noise from the house began to spread, who is it that catches wind of what is going on here? Well, it's Jesus' most faithful cheerleaders. In verse 16, the Bible says, When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, that they said to his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? So the scribes and the Pharisees catch wind of what's going on here. I imagine they were probably following in the distance, seeing what thing Jesus was going to do next, seeing what thing Jesus was going to claim that he had the ability to accomplish. And when they see Jesus go in with with Levi into this house full of sinners, somehow they capture the attention of the disciples and they began to question them. And isn't that how most religious people are? Instead of going to the one that they had the problem with, who do they go to? They go to somebody close to that individual. Instead of talking directly to the one that they should have been confronting if they thought he was doing something wrong, they begin to go to everybody else and they ask the question, how is it that your teacher can sit down and eat with publicans and sinners? Now this name or these names that Jesus was associating himself with, would have meant in some way that he himself was a sinner. If he was hanging out with this crowd, then he must have been participating in the very things that they were doing. We know that this is a common thing for Jesus to come up against. And we understand that in Matthew 11, Jesus actually uses these names or this this association to prove who he was. In Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of our children. And as Jesus is teaching in Matthew 11, as he's proclaiming the truth of Matthew 11, he's beginning to use this idea of comparison to reveal that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious crowd had missed it once again. You see, the religious crowd didn't like John the Baptist. Why? Because he was a stick in the mud. He would never do anything fun. He would always stick to what he thought he was supposed to do. They could never find any fault with him. Well, when they looked at Jesus, they didn't have a problem with him thinking he was a stick in the mud. But what did they think about him? He's a liberal. He's participating in everything known to mankind. And what does Jesus say? The religious crowd has missed the reality of who I am. They're upset because I'm not like John the Baptist, and they're upset because I'm not doing the things that they should be doing. And then he makes this statement that wisdom shall be justified of her children. Now, this oftentimes is a phrase that kind of goes over our heads, and we don't really pay it much attention. But what does Jesus mean by that? Well, in Matthew 11, Jesus is relaying this idea that the actions that Jesus performed will, pro- will prove to be holy and righteous in the fruit that they produce. Wisdom will be justified in our children. You see, Jesus was spending time with people who he knew needed him. He was investing in the lives of those who were far from God and needed to be drawn close to God. And I imagine that as Jesus sat around this table on this day, we at least know of one in Matthew that the gospel transformed his life completely and wisdom was justified or proven by the fruit that it bore. But I imagine also that there were many others around the table on that day whose lives were changed because of an interaction with Jesus. And how many of us can say here today that our lives have been changed because of an interaction with Jesus? And what does that prove? That wisdom is justified of our children. That when the rest of the world or the religious world would look at us in this room and say they could never make it to God, Jesus says, I'm going to die in their place so they can make it to God. And the fruit that came from the work of Christ on the cross is proving that Jesus was living the life that God had sent him to live. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they were struggling. They couldn't do the mental gymnastics to understand how Jesus could claim to be holy but put himself in this situation. They couldn't, in their minds, grasp how how one who claimed to be God could allow himself to be corrupted by these evil and wicked people that he was now associating himself with. But you see, while the voice of the critics is often loud, and while the voice of the critics often causes us to shirk back from what we know is right, the voice of the critics did not have any impact on the life and ministry of Jesus. When those who held what he did in disdain verbally assaulted him and claimed claimed that he was not God, what did Jesus do? He continued in the path that the Father had called him to. We can't get sidetracked when the critics begin to speak but rather we must make sure in those moments that the things that we're doing are the very things that the Father has called us to do. And as Jesus catches wind of this conversation, we don't really know how that happened other than he heard it. The Bible says that Jesus comes over to the scribes and the Pharisees and he confronts them in a way that only Jesus can. They probably thought he was going to come and and verbally assault them or defend himself with with words that they couldn't refute. And in part, that is what he did. And while they probably didn't understand the whole of Jesus' illustration, thankfully today we can look at it in the whole context of Scripture and understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't say many words, but the words that Jesus says were impactful then and they're impactful still today. And Mark relays to us that when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, in part, what Jesus was doing here is saying that the assessment of the religious crowd was accurate and that the people that he was hanging out with were indeed sinful people. Jesus was saying, you're absolutely right. The ones that I'm associating with, the ones that I'm hanging out with, the ones that I'm having table fellowship with are indeed sinners, and I have come to them because they have a desperate need that only the great physician in a spiritual sense can heal. They have a condition that cannot be fixed by their actions, by their desires, or by their efforts. It can only be fixed by someone else. And Jesus said, these are the people that I have come for. But what they didn't understand is that the second section or part of Jesus' statement would have been a slam against the religious crowd on that day. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. You see, the religious crowd of that day and in this day often think that they don't actually need Jesus. They're good enough on their own. Their their self-righteousness has caused their minds to be blinded to the truthful condition of their heart. And when they look at Jesus hanging out with sinners instead of applauding and rejoicing and being excited over the work that Jesus is doing, all they can do in their minds is question, why is Jesus with them and not with us? Why is Jesus spending time with this crowd who doesn't deserve him, Instead of spending the time with us, the ones who have cleaned up our, our lives enough for Him to want to be with us. So Jesus' words were pointed and they were sharp, but they revealed to us the life that Jesus came to live. You see, friends, today Jesus came for the sinners. He came to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal those who were sick with a sickness that could never be healed with the ways of men. He, he came to befriend those who others had cast off, to, to uh, associate himself with those who, who nobody else wanted anything to do with. In their day, this idea of, of being in the presence of a physician would have meant that you were pretty bad off. They didn't have well checkups like we have today, right? When they went to the doctor, why did they go to the doctor? Because they were sick. Because they had a need. And why was it that the doctor came to them? Because they were sick and they had a need. And friends, why is it that the doctor came to us? Because we were sick and we had a need. I love what Warren Wiersbe has to say about this. He says, now we see that our Savior may be compared to a physician. He comes to us in our need. He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides a final and complete cure, and he pays the bill. What a physician we have in Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. Before we move on to the next thought, I want to give us some takeaways from this idea of understanding Jesus. First off is this. His friendship was not an affirmation of their lives, but of his love. You see, when Jesus came to hang out with these sinners, he was not saying, I approve of everything that you're doing, just continue in life as you know it. He was not affirming their sinful lifestyles, but he was affirming this idea that he loved them beyond what they could even recognize in this moment. And in our world today, everything needs to be affirmed. But Christians, can we agree that there's some things that we cannot affirm? but it doesn't mean we can't love. It doesn't mean we can't befriend those who find themselves in predicaments that we could never even dream of, that we can't go to them and wrap our arms around them and sit and have table fellowship with them, reminding them that we are on their side, because that's exactly what Jesus did in this moment. And as I read through this passage and studied through this passage, I can't tell you how convicted I was. About this idea of me being a friend to sinners. Oh, I'm a friend to sinners. I'm a friend to sinners of people who are in this church. But who is it outside of this church that I'm a friend of that's a sinner? Who is it that I know that's lost in their sins, that has no hope, and I'm actively pursuing a relationship with them? I'm sure Matthew was pretty excited that Jesus did that for him. The question we must ask is, are we doing that? And so his friendship was not an affirmation of their lives, but it was an affirmation of his love. Secondly, his friendship was meant to be transformational. As we think about Jesus' impact on them, they didn't change Jesus to be like them. Jesus changed them to be like him. Isn't it true that uh, we, we say this saying all the time, that one bad apple, wow, maybe it's not as well-known as I thought, Spoils the whole bunch, right? And oftentimes we live with that fear that if I get too close to sin, then what? I'm going to become a sinner. And I've even heard that preached. And in some ways I understand it and I agree with it. But how can we be transformational in the lives of others if we're holding them at a distance? How can we have an impact if we're not actually allowing them into their lives? You say, well, I'm afraid that they're going to change me to be like them. Friend, stick close to Jesus and that won't happen. Doesn't mean again that you have to do everything they do. There should be times where you separate yourself from them based on what they're doing. But maybe we should pray that our lives would be transformational for others as Jesus' life was transformational for these people here. The final thing that I think is interesting is is that his friendship was not self-serving. Do you know that these people could add nothing to the life of Jesus? nothing. He didn't go to those that he could get something from. He went to those who could give him nothing in return. You say, well, well some of them were tax collectors. They, they had pockets that were lined with money. Did Jesus care about money? No. And so he wasn't going to them based on what he could get from them. He was going to them based on what he could give them. He was living in a self-sacrificial way, and that's exactly the way that we're supposed to live as well. And all of this falls under this idea of understanding Jesus. The second thing we see this morning is understanding ourselves. Now, we like to understand Jesus, right? We like to hear about Jesus. We like to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. But how many of us would say that we at times go to great lengths to not understand ourselves, to not see a true picture of who we are? Anybody else in the room? That when you're confronted with a reality that might be true in your life, you do everything you can do to get away from that thought because you don't want to have a negative view of yourself. Friend, you can't be saved until you have a negative view of yourself. You can't come to faith until you first admit that you are a sinner. And so as we've understood Jesus, there's, there's things to rejoice about greatly in that understanding, but we also at the very same time must understand who we are. Has your mind ever been open to see who you truly are by looking at somebody else? That became very true for me when our children began to talk, right? You get a picture of who you are and how you act, oftentimes, by those that you're closest with. Oftentimes, it happens in your children or it happens with your spouse, but it can also happen by looking at other people with an honest lens. If you see somebody with a negative character flaw in their lives, it's easy for us to say, I would never do that. But you know the right thing for us to do in those situations would be God, if that's what I look like, help me to see it for what it is. Help me to recognize it so I don't have to stay in that place. And so it's good for us to understand ourselves. It's good for us to see us as we really are. Well, as we look to this section, Jesus does a good job of reminding us that we are all here. While we would like to tag ourselves as Jesus in this story, the truth is we're not Jesus. And the one next to you, if you ask them, will probably pretty quickly tell you that you're not Jesus. And though we've fooled ourselves at times thinking that we have it all together and we have life figured out, the reality is we are still very sinful people. You understand that? That we're still sinners? Now, thankfully, from what I can see in the room, many of us are saved sinners but we still struggle on a daily basis with this sin nature that rises up within us and and that we have to quench through the power of the Spirit of God. But we're still all sinners. So the Bible here is going to help us get a good view of ourselves. And if Jesus was the friend of sinners, then we must understand that that clearly makes us the sinners who were in need of a friend. And in the story, we see a couple of types of sinners. We know in the end, they're all the same, but I want to look at them in in two different groups. The first group would be Levi and his friends. They were the wild crowd. They were rough around the edges. They had big mouths. They were bold and crass and belligerent. Their lifestyles were likely filled with evil. And you say, you don't know the things they did. You're right. I don't know the things they have done, but I do know the heart of man is sinful. And so whether or not their actions were immoral from a public eye perspective or whether or not their hearts were simply far from God, we know that they were sinners in need of a friend. As they talked with Jesus, I imagine that Jesus in some ways talked about sin to them. And it appears that they thought of themselves as sinners. They didn't flee from Jesus. They didn't talk about others in the midst of Jesus, but they recognized themselves as who they were. That's the first group, sinners who were sinning because they were sinners. The second group of people, in some ways, is a little worse. When they heard the word sin or sinners, it wasn't themselves they thought of, but it was everyone else. While the first crowd was likely visibly sick, meaning that you could pick out the flaws in their lives, the second crowd would have been what we call invisibly sick. They had a terminal illness, but they didn't recognize it. They could see where everyone else had gone wrong, the faults and failings that everyone else had in their lives, but they could not see the sin in their own lives. And that's why when Jesus uh, allowed himself to be followed by these sinful men, and as Jesus found himself in the presence of these sinful men at a table fellowship meal... The one group was rejoicing, and the other group was complaining. The first group was elated that Jesus was in their presence, that he would sit with them, and dine with them, and fellowship with them. While the second group, all they could do is not condemn just those who were sinful, but to condemn Jesus as well. And as I said, while the first group was visibly sick, the second group was invisibly sick. They thought highly of themselves. They got good at masking their sickness to the point that they even believed they weren't sick. But understand the truth, friend. Though Both of their sicknesses manifested themselves in different ways because they were all sinners and they all had a need and they were all carrying the sentence of death over their heads like the leper that Jesus healed In chapter 1. But only those who admit this truth will find friendship in Christ. Do you know why the, the religious crowd never had a good relationship with Jesus? Because they could never admit the truth about themselves. And in never admitting the truth about themselves, they could never admit the truth of who Jesus was. But the first crowd like the rest of the disciples who are called, recognize that they were in need. And though they didn't live a perfect life after finding Jesus, we understand that their lives were drastically changed because of the impact that Jesus had on them. If we went back to Matthew chapter 11 as we talked a few moments ago where where Jesus was talking about himself and John the Baptist and he said, wisdom is justified over children, The end of that passage is actually one that we quote often, and I think that's the disservice we have of of pulling verses from chapters without giving their whole context. But as Jesus was speaking or teaching in Matthew chapter 11, at the end of that passage, as I said, this is a passage that we quote often, the words of Jesus are these, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, as Jesus was teaching on that day, he wasn't just saying that you're a religious crowd who has no hope or or you, you think you've got it all together, but he's then called those people to himself. But who was it that came to Jesus? Who has it been throughout history that has come to Jesus? It's those who have recognized their sickness and those who at the very same time have recognized the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so I would ask this today, first and foremost, what group are we in? Maybe you're here and you've been going to church your whole life. Friend, the religious crowd in Mark 2 could say the same thing. They did everything they were supposed to do and yet they were still far from Jesus. I wonder today, will you you drop that guard and see yourself as you really are, a sinner in need of a Savior? I know the stories of many of you in this room, and you know my story, that there came a point in our lives where that truth became a reality in our hearts, and the only person that we could run to was Jesus. Why? Because He's the only one that was offering a cure for the problem that we've had. If you're here today and you've never come to Him, I would implore you to come to Him today to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And while Jesus is the physician who came to heal the sickness, we must understand that we are the sinners in need of the healing. We are the sinners in need of the healing. So I would ask you, would you come to Him today? But after we're saved, oftentimes we fall into a trap. And what that trap is, is this, that we go from being those who know they have a need of Jesus to those who become ones who think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And while at one point in our lives we felt that the weight of our sin crushing us, Understanding that we had no hope outside of Christ and we humbly bowed in his presence and repented of our sins and by faith were made children of God. But then something happens often in life that we go through life and we forget all that God has done for us through Christ. And you know who we slowly but surely begin to become? The religious crowd who stands off in the corner. Not so much judging Jesus, but judging everybody else. Friend, it's not my job to judge you. It's not. It's not your job to judge me. There, there is one judge. Now, do we make judgments? Yes. There's a difference between judging and making judgments. Do we see somebody in sin and try to help them? Yes, that's the good thing to do. But these Pharisees in this story were not trying to help anybody but themselves so often we as believers find ourselves becoming less than overwhelmed with the truth of the gospel and very quick to judge those who either aren't where we are in their Christian walk or aren't even saved yet. Friends, may that not be the case of us. May we not stand off in the corner lifting up our eyes to heaven and promoting ourselves before a God who knows everything. But may we, no matter where we find ourselves in the Christian life, find ourselves bowing before the throne of grace, saying, God, I know I'm an unworthy sinner, but I also know that Jesus is my Savior. And help me, God, To make your son's name known in this world. You say, well, that sounds like a lofty goal. I don't think that's really what life is to look like. Well, in Luke 18, we're given an account that kind of actually sums that up. In verses 11 through 14, the Bible says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see, the two go hand in hand. When we think we're righteous, we automatically begin to despise those who are not like us. Jesus says, two men went up into a temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus says one sinner went home justified and one sinner went home in his sins. In our story, the one who went home justified would have been Levi and his friends because they believed the truth of Christ to our knowledge. They trusted in the one who came to save them from their sins and The other group went home in their sins, and who would that be? Well, it would have been none other than the self righteous Pharisee. And I would ask us this morning, which group are we in? You see, we started this morning understanding who Jesus is. Why? Because we'll never understand ourselves until we understand who Jesus is. We'll never understand the sinful condition that we find ourselves in until we understand the one who came to save us from that state. And as Jesus is spending this time with these publicans and sinners, we understand that he was disdained because of it, held in contempt by the religious crowd of that day, yet Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do as he lived out the will of his Father. As Jesus says in verse number 17, the whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Understand this, friend. Jesus never exaggerates our sinful state and the need that we have. When he says we are sick, what are we? We're sick. But isn't it true that we often exaggerate in our minds our own self-righteousness? When we're in that position, when we're tempted to do those things, then we must. We must cling to the words of Jesus instead of our own. And so as we close today, as we understand Jesus and as we understand ourselves, I have two questions before we get into the Lord's Supper, and I think they're pertinent for our time this morning. The first one is this. Have you repented and believed the gospel? If you remember back To Mark 1, what was the message that Jesus came preaching? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your sins. Repent against the things that you have done or of the things that you have done against a holy and just God who has the power to cast you into hell for all of eternity. Repent of those things and turn to Christ. Friend, understand this. If you are here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're to die in your sin, you will be separated from a holy and loving and just God for all of eternity. There is no other way. You may say, I can make it on my own because of the things that I've done. No, friend, the only thing that you deserve, the only thing that I deserve because of the things that I have done is separation from God. And so I ask you, I plead with you, have you repented? And have you believed the gospel? You say, well, I could never do it now. I've been in church my whole life. Friend, if you're living and breathing, then you still have opportunity to come to Christ. And I will tell you a truth that the people in this room who have seen you in this church for your whole life would rejoice with you if today was the day of your salvation. So will you repent and will you believe? In a moment, we'll give you an opportunity to do just that. And if the Spirit of God has opened the eyes of your heart to see the truth of who you are, friend, don't delay. Don't be like King Agrippa who said, almost thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian, but bow fully at the foot of the cross and receive the life that only Jesus can give. So have you repented and have you believed? The second question is for those of us who have, and it is this. Have we slipped into the religious mindset? It's so easy. Isn't it? Isn't it so easy to see somebody doing Likely the exact same thing that you used to do. And think to yourself, how could they? Or maybe it's a sin that you have never struggled with. And yet you still find yourself sitting there thinking, I'm glad I'm not like that. And all the while we're mimicking The prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18. Basically saying, God, I thank you that I'm so much better than everybody else. (laughs) I appreciate what Dave Littlefield says. It's not that we're better. It's that we're better off. And if we're better off because we are saved, friend, then the the, the mindset of religion should never enter into our minds. (laughs) We should not look down on those who find themselves in sin but we should pity them to the point that we sit down and table fellowship with them like Jesus did. So I don't know where this might be true of you, but if in your life you have slipped into a religious mindset at all, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, friend, may we repent together. Because that's not the mentality that Jesus would have us to live with.